Welcome to Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am Michael Haig, your host. You did that backwards. You said, as always, I am Michael Haig. I did, yeah, yeah. I was like, Uh, are you always Michael Haig? (laughs) I am. I'm always Michael Haig. (laughs) I produce work in the field of applied ethics, specifically sexual ethics and more specifically polyamory. I have been a practicing member of the community for 10 years now. And I am Sarah Lucas. I am a student at a local university studying consensual non-monogamy and child rearing um, and I have been a practicing polyamorist for about a year and a half. And I'm Mandy Conant. I am the director of Atlanta Poly Weekend and I have been practicing polyamory for about 17 years now. This is episode 13. That's a big marker as it turns out because this is a bi-weekly podcast. Episode 13 is roughly six months. So it's our, it's our first half a year. It's a pretty big benefit mark I think you know and you start something like this and you put all the work in and you have a episode <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then two weeks later you have to have another episode yeah. and so you got to look back and go yeah I have a whole six months of episodes it's a really exciting place for us all to be today's episode topic is commitment and I think we're going to use that to look at both maybe common definitions of commitment what people think commitment means what we think commitment means also how commitment affects relationships. So this was actually Mandy's brainchild. She was asking about commitment. Didn't you want to tell us a little bit you're talking to a friend or how did that how did you decide you wanted to Somebody asked me how I could be committed to multiple partners. And I kind of just went because you can be the same way you can be committed to multiple children and committed to multiple parents and committed to multiple friends. And I kind of just went, you know, maybe commitment doesn't mean the same thing to me as it does to you because the the person I was speaking with is monogamous. So of Mm. course, commitment in monogamy is very different than commitment in polyamory. So I put it out there on Facebook and I just kind of wanted to know what commitment meant to everyone because obviously, you know, like we said in the the last podcast, there was a different definition based on (laughs) cultural differences and upbringing, upbringing, thank you, (laughs) upbringing differences. I think I got something like 60 comments and they ran the gambit of, of different definitions and and different views on commitment. So it was really super interesting to me that something that I thought was fairly universal actually was not. Hmm. Yeah, I will always say that nothing is universal. People just think words and word meaning is universal. I mean, that's, I know it's my shtick, my raise on Detra, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it was great that we kind of, we very much hit on this sure. in the last podcast. I think it's fairly natural to, to talk about this now, that there is such a difference in definition for people of what commitment means to them. Right. Well, and this is a big one. Uh, I did a talk for the local poly group in, in Charlotte, which is the Charlotte Poly Network. And I, I did the one of the sessions that I did it done at APW. That I guess this is probably my most popular session. They wanted it both years at APW. This is out of all the things they saw at APW. It's what they asked me to do, which is the Defending Non-Monogamy series, where I basically get up, ask people to write the most difficult, most common questions they get, and then they play devil's advocate, and I re- sort of argue back to the questions. And I'm going to stop you for a minute. You do realize why people want that, right? 
Like it's so important for us to be able to defend our way of living and, and to defend our emotions and our feelings. And people don't have the terms for it. We don't have the words for it. So your class is so important and I will probably ask you to do it again next year. <laughs> well, and, and you know, because I've been able to do it so much, I'm actually starting to enjoy it because I've been able to evolve it. Like that it's now so interactive and that I have a good sense of how it's going to work and that it's almost got this sort of game aspect to it now. Like I'm, you know, I'm not I'm not against that. I never really know what things are going to be the most helpful to people. That's why, you know, having well both of you work with me, but also comments and going out and talking to people is so helpful. I don't have a, a sense of I think the the most common needs. <laughs> I get really excited about like really really eldritch stuff. I'm like, I wanna know about like the philosophy of the erotic from Bouvier in, you know, nineteen fifties existentialism. Like that that stuff gets me going. Well, I mean, like... I'm I'm excited about that too, Michael. I mean, don't feel too much of an outcast. <laughs> and I'm just here to translate. <laughs> the other poly researcher in the crew going, we're not that different. Um, <laughs> yeah. But one of the questions that I got in this session was exactly that, which is how can you be committed to someone if you're sleeping with someone else? Right. That this idea that commitment includes monogamous sexual fidelity at a some sort of base level which is a really fascinating concept to me can we take a moment to define fidelity in contrast to commitment because i don't really know oh, what the please. difference is or if there is one. Oh, sure well big difference big difference. So, well, sexual fidelity if you put sexual in front of it first which is what i did there yes um it means you don't sleep with other people so how does that play into the term polyfidelity polyfidelity is when multiple people have agreed to only sleep with each other so like a closed triad oh, I see. or a multi-person group so you can you can even have situations like say five total people let's say three guys two girls and they only they agree to sleep only with people in the group even though like say two of the guys don't sleep with each other you could call that a polyfidelitous group so i guess right? as long as they don't go outside the group or i could be polyfidelitous if i just had relationships with ryan and jerry and there was no okay. that was it yeah. And that was the the deal. Are you saying, and they don't have relationships outside of you? No, or no, no. I would be polyfidelitous mm, mm-hmm. instead of the relationship, the total relationship sure. being that way. I do want to add one thing to that, though, then, which is usually, I mean, that would be linguistically correct, but usually when I see the term polyfidelity, or people say we're polyfidelitous, we're interested in polyfidelity, they mean a, it's um, a, group. a complete closed loop. They want to know what the loop yeah. is, and they want to see it closed. Interesting. Rarely, rarely does someone mean I have just two partners, and I'm, and I don't go outside of that. So I guess the mononormative idea of commitment then is fidelity. Like commitment means fidelity in their minds. Whereas for us, commitment and fidelity are, can be separated. Well, sexual fidelity. Sexual fidelity. Yes. Thank you. Sexual fidelity and a committed long-term relationship can be separated. Am I understanding that right? Yes. Okay. All right. Let's start with the dictionary definitions for this then. Okay. Okay. And I'm using Merriam-Webster, which is pretty much- I was like, please- Define which dictionary you're using. Yes, yes, good point, good point. I did. I'm using Merriam-Webster, which is pretty (laughs) much the standard when I've done academic work. That's the the one people usually go to. And I'm going to do commitment and fidelity. So commitment definitions, the first definition, an agreement or pledge to do something in the future, something pledged, state or instance of being obligated or emotionally impelled, such as a commitment to a cause. And I think, honestly, oddly, people conflate 
those layers because I think when people say things like, well, I want someone who's committed to me, they mean that sort of state of emotional attachment, but they're Mm -hmm. claiming that the way they check that state is through like sexual fidelity in the form of an agreement. Right. But of course that requires an agreement of sexual fidelity, which we don't have in poly circles. Mm -hmm. And I think that before you read the definition of Are you going to read the definition of fidelity or sexual fidelity? I was just going to do fidelity because obviously sexual fidelity is very clear. Fidelity has has an A and B for the first definition. And the other ones are like, how well an electronic device works, which is actually is electrical (laughs) fidelity. Wi-Fi, right? Wi-Fi means high fidelity, like wireless fidelity. Oh, weird. I, okay. Huh. If you didn't know that. I didn't know that. (laughs) My electronic devices work well. Thank you. They're quite (laughs) fidelitous. It means that people can't hack it, right? So why oh, am I no. supposed to be a secure system? Because it's faithful just to you, the user, not other people, ironically. It is such a fa- My Wi-Fi is so faithful to me. So, yeah, so the first definition, A, is just the quality or state of being faithful. Quote, his fidelity to his wife. Okay. Which I was surprised by. I thought it was just going to say something like, actually doing what you said. Hmm. And it doesn't. And B is accuracy in details, so it sort of means doing what they said. But really, fidelity seems to just automatically include this sort of sexual fidelity element, at least in the dictionary definition. I love the second definition. <laughs> yeah. Because to me, that's communication. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah, I like so that So I think that it's it's definitely the accurate definition for polyamory. Interesting. Well, and, and so then when you go on to faithful, the first definition in faithful is steadfast in affection or allegiance. And that's what I think about. Like, that's kind of my thought about commitment. Commitment, yeah. I have that steadfastness and sort of the affection and allegiance. And then the second one is firm in adherences to promises or in an observance of duty. So you fulfill your promises and you observe the duties that you've agreed to. Three, given with strong assurance. Four, true to the facts, to a standard or to an original. None of those things intrinsically require not having sex with other people. But since the monogamous contract in the language, in the term, and in the cultural understanding includes dyadic sexual fidelity. God, i got to add so many words to say that sentence, right? <laughs> <laughs> and because most people who are asking this question are coming from a monogamous background, they haven't ever sat down and critically examined what commitment means. And this goes back to the way that relationship terms in our culture have a preset thousand page contract. They're referencing that without realizing that it's a normative device that was created, which is modified, which changes in every generation. Every region. And in every region, in every country, every state. And so they see it as being monolithic and natural and everywhere. And they don't get that it's constructed. Right. So this is definitely one of those things that you should sit down with your partner or your soon-to-be partner or person you're thinking about being your partner and talk to them about what commitment means to each of you, to all of you. I mean, ironically, we got kicked two definitions over, but I think the first two definitions of faithful combined for me is what I would have said, although more formal language, if you ask me what I think about commitment, which is, I am steadfast in my affection and my allegiance to my partners, and I am firm in adherence to whatever promises or duties I have agreed to be part of. Like, that's what I think of commitment as being. What was the second definition that I said was so awesome for fidelity? Fidelity, very technical. Accurate in details. Right. Like, that's commitment to me. If I detail something to you, I'm going to be accurate in it. That's commitment. Interesting. I like it. What is it, Michael? I feel lost <laughs> on that one. Look. That was definitely the lost face. For yeah. those of you who can't see Michael, because obviously this is a podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> he 
He just gave the most lost face I think I've ever seen. Yeah, looking up to the left at the top of his eye socket. For him, anyway. Sure. I I guess I'm just confused. I'm trying to sort of read accuracy and details as being commitment. Obviously, you have to have accurate details in order to have clear commitments. Okay, so what I did was I kind of flipped it. So to me, the details come first and your accuracy in those details is your fidelity. Does that make sense? Wouldn't it be your adherence to those details that's your fidelity? Right, the accuracy in them. Oh, okay. Well, but accuracy in detail means described really well, right? I mean, like it even says colon exactness, right? So... Right, accuracy is correct, right? Yeah. It's synonymous with correct. It's accurate, it's correct. Correct? <laughs> I, say, I actually don't think that's right. I don't think that's what accuracy means. I think accuracy actually means similar to reality. Oh, no, you are right. Freedom from mistakes or error, correctness. So if you have your details and you are correct in those details, then you are upholding what you said you were going to do. Yeah, I don't know. I think I okay. think the problem for me is the the existentialist bent, where I don't think you can project yourself into the future that way. Ah, uh, yes, like you've said, um, you mentioned in a previous podcast episode that one of the things you've said to your partner is, "All I can promise you is I can't promise you anything," which is your accuracy in details, mm-hmm. though. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, like both of my husbands, I did not promise them forever. Mm-hmm. Didn't do it. My only forever that I can promise anyone is my children. Yeah. Because I will be their mom until I die. Right. So they're the only ones that get my promise of forever. My partners get my promise of trying to make things work and being there for them and supporting them and trying to build a future with them. Mm-hmm. Right. But I never once in any of the vows said forever. I like that. So my, like, that's, that's my details. Mm-hmm. I guess I just, I mean, I think that's a fun, maybe poetic way to say it, but I think that you thought through details well there that are going to lend you to successfully having commitment. Oh yeah, I definitely screwed it up multiple times prior to that. <laughs> <laughs> definitely have previous husbands that I promised forever to. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess I just don't want, like, I don't see the measuring stick for commitment being that I successfully project my future motives and then meet them. Oh, or don't, in this case, right? Or have a line like, I'm not going to promise you anything. So what is your, without asking you your specific definition of commitment, <laughs> what is your commitment to pick a partner. Pick that partner and tell me what your commitment to them is, if you're committed to them. Right. I mean, I happen to know you're committed to one, at least. Yeah. So what? It, what, <laughs> what is your commitment? I think it's about my steadfastness. It's not that there are lines about what I'm going to do, but my emotional care is constant. I am committed to the relationship because I'm going to protect and and work through what I think will be best for them as much as for myself because of my uh, affection for them. And that sometimes is going to mean even if I did make a promise or something that was like a promise or even sort of sub-commitments, like I'll be here at 2 o'clock, breaking them, if breaking those things I think helps them. You know, one of the things that I always say to my friends when I'm telling them secrets, I say, this is a secret unless you decide to tell someone. The reason I'm telling you is because you, I believe you have my best interests at heart. And even though I want this to be a secret, I can imagine that you would find some scenario, scenario in the future that I didn't imagine where you think it's in my best interest to share this. And that that's also how... You, you, give that, you give that disclaimer every time you tell someone a secret? Well, just like the first time. I mean, now you guys know. So now if I was like, this is a secret. Some, I mean, not always. Sometimes I make a reminder, just a quick throwaway. Like, my first secret disclaimer. 
if in the future I ever tell you a secret, this is how I feel about it. Well, it's how I feel about, about friendship and secrets generally, right? Or friendships generally. The reason I give you sensitive information is because I trust you to use that information to improve my life. Right. It's the reason I want you to have it. I think my life will be better if you have it. My general sense from my perspective is that for whatever reason, this particular thing isn't something that I will be benefited by other people knowing. But you can imagine that there'll be a scenario I did not see and you will feel that you need to use it. And so in that case, someone could say something like, well, you I mean, obviously not if I add the hilarious caveat that you can you can tell that. But that was how I felt even before I realized that I could just say that to people. Like when I was younger and trying to understand how being told in confidence worked. It's like that idea, like when you go into, you know, you go somewhere and you like tell the doctor in confidence, you know, something about them being hurt. And, you know, and I had to go and tell other authorities and be like, sorry, like it's in confidence, but we need to help you. Mm -hmm. That there's a, there's a burden of responsibility that you can have that's outside of simply doing what the other person told you to do. That we're not, we're not static individuals. We are the, you know, the existentialist possibilities, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can find better ways of being sometimes or ways that you think are more authentic. And it's the reason I eventually didn't want to make promises is because I felt like I made promises that made sense and then things changed and then I had to either break the promise or not. And so obviously it's better to avoid that, but nobody's going to be able to perfectly avoid everything that looks like commitments. And that wouldn't even realistically successfully portray who I am either, right? Like if I told, you know, wouldn't say things like, I want to be part of your life for the rest of my life to my, like my nesting partner, for instance, I don't think that would be accurate to my emotional center but I also know that there might come a point where because of the way things have changed it's not good for her or it's not good for me to to still be in her life and I could leave to help her oh yeah absolutely yeah so for me commitment isn't about honoring what I say I'm going to do it's about honoring sort of the spirit that I set it in interesting I like that too okay Sarah what what is a commitment to you like a current commitment previous commitment Being the relationship anarchist that I am, I feel that commitment is a very subjective idea. Absolutely. Yeah. I I very much do my best to not commit to anything in relationships, except I commit to, like, appreciate you for whatever you are and whatever you mean to me in that moment. And I also commit to expressing whatever I feel if there is a change to whatever the norm is in this relationship. For instance, if I'm having a regular communication pattern where I'm speaking to someone daily, like once an hour or something like that, which is typical for me when with an NRE relationship, even if it's just like text messaging or whatever, which it usually is. Sure. If there is a change, a pattern change in that, I will say, hey, for the next day or so, I'm really going to be busy, so you're not going to hear from me that much. And... And that's something that I am committed to do. So little things like that. For me, commitment isn't necessarily, I I don't commit to large things because life changes and life throws you different curves and I'm not willing to break my promises to someone. So I don't know exactly how to define, I I guess I don't believe in long-term commitment. That's fair enough. What do you mean by don't believe in long-term commitment? Can you clarify that? I don't believe it is something that is a, a rational, reasonable idea for humans because we change and there's nothing wrong with that. It just is human nature. And so I think that committing to this idea that you are going to not change and be this person to this someone for a long period of time is just kind of absurd to me. I feel it's completely impossible. So I I have no interest in committing to that. And I think that maybe some people can, but I'm definitely not one of them. 
if that's not what you're committing to them, though. What do you mean? That doesn't have to be what you commit to them, is to be a specific person for them for a specific amount of time. That's just a type of commitment. True. One, I, I want to push back on a lot of that. Okay, do it. Because you're talking about, you, you, you had, you had. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see his eyebrows? <laughs> you had words, you had really big words in there, like human nature, where I always want to be very careful about trying to select something as being human nature. The fundamental principle of the critical race movement and feminist movement is the idea that the culture has so obscured anything like a fundamental nature that you can never tell apart a fundamental nature from a cultural construct. True. So you really don't have a lot of access to my, what might count as that, which is the whole idea about how people are going to say gender is constructed. So there is every reason to believe there must be significant, consistent sexual differences between males and females, but there's no way to tell what they are. Because you can say something like, oh, well, women are more committed to being in the home or something, but then they were forced at gunpoint to be in the home for so many decades and hundreds of years that you don't know that that wasn't something that they were culturally taught. Even though more, more women are still in the home and do more domestic labor, there's no way to tell if they just like it better or if they're forced into it and culturally coerced into it. That's what expected. Precisely. So you can never really make that. That's a hard claim to make. Well, aren't these cultural norms human nature, though? Even if they aren't something that is biologically. They've become human nature. Right, that they aren't like necessarily biologically individual, but the idea that as a culture we behave this way is also human nature, right? Or am I misunderstanding what you're trying to say? That assumes the universality of the culture you exist in. I mean, women being forced in the home is one of the more universal ones mm -hmm. that you can think about. But in our culture, and in most of all the Western world, men are not... It's getting a little bit better now, but men have not for a long time been supposed to dress in bright colors, mm -hmm. wear lots of jewelry, have long hair, wear makeup, etc. Mm -hmm. But of course, before the Enlightenment period, that was a staple for men. High heels started with men, right. dresses started with men. They were much prettier than women. <laughs> and, and in many non-Western <laughs> countries, that has never gone, no, never went away until Western countries you know, started shooting them up and killing them and taking over their country, and they tried to conform to not get shot as much. Right, yeah. yeah. And even things like gender is now there's a sense, right, that universally there's basically, I mean, we're getting, we're getting, finally getting more genders, but there's a sense that until very recently, you know, in the 50s, they would have said male and female as the binary genders are universal. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that when settlers got to America, the Native Americans, depending on which tribe you're talking about, have between three and five recognized genders. Right. And they would ask them, what's a man? And they'd go, what do you mean by man? And they'd be like, uh, who has a penis? And they would go, okay, well, our word for that is this. But their word, that wasn't their word for man, because those were not synonymous. Mm -hmm. Their gender constructs were so different. But there was an assumption that that was just synonymous, because there was an assumption that that word meant the same thing in every language, because there was an assumption that man, men, as a thing, were a universal construct. So I would not say that culture is human nature either. I could say something really specific like, in a Western culture, lifelong commitments are impossible, untenable, non-functional, or something like that. Okay. But I, I wouldn't want to say something like nature. And what I was going to say, though, is what, what, what you can do, and some you can do, is you can say there's some evidence that it might be human nature. And then look at sort of what the evidence that might make that look like human nature. But I think you would find that the evidence would be the opposite in that case. There's actually a lot of really interesting studies around the way that extremely long-term commitments increase 
health of people who participate in them. That's true. So like lifelong structured commitments, friendships, romantic relationships of 10 years plus seem to have significantly more positive health effects on people that participate in them than short, younger relationships do, for instance. So that means I'm just going to die at 45. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> and and in our native environment, you would have been surrounded by basically the same people your entire life. There might have been one transition where you moved to a new tribe to find a wife or a husband. Mm -hmm. And with the exception of that, you would have been with one group your whole life and then a different group your whole life. Mm -hmm. In fact, all of your relationships would be lifelong, for, for good or for mm -hmm. ill. So the, the environmentally native state for humans involves an assumption of lifelong commitments for everything, which I think is part of the reason why people find monogamy so comforting and find the idea of walking away from it so terrifying because nowhere else in our culture are lifelong commitments celebrated other than parenthood. Mm -hmm. yeah. People think I'm really weird for living with my best friend and for having a best friend for like 20, 30 years. They're like, that's so weird. That's cool, but yeah. Like I wouldn't move without talking to my friend and agreeing that we were going to either move together or that he wanted me to move or, you know, like I wouldn't, I just wouldn't. I would, you know, he, for all functional purposes is a you could call it a nesting partner, not in any way sexual, but right. for all functional structures. You know, I don't think it's unreasonable to say, to, you know, project likelihoods, right? So say something like, I'm not going to make choices without involving you in the decision-making process. And I may have to make the choice against what you want because I don't know what my kids are going to need and what my more immediate obligations are going to require, what my financial future may require, but that I don't foresee a scenario where I have a reason not to include him and for him not to continue being in our family group. And the longer we're together, the more shared experiences we have, the more value the relationship provides, the less likely that seems like it's going to be. So I think that there was a tipping point for me, and I don't think it was until like four or five years with my current partner where I was like, all right, well, I've reached a point, not where I want to say I'm with you for life, but where I, I have evaluated the entire field of possibilities and I can't find a single one where I don't want you to be there. And so I don't know that that's going to last forever, but I have a hard time even imagining my future with, your, with you not in it. So I think that there's a form of commitment that's there, again, in that emotional consistency. And in basically saying, I've had this emotional consistency for four years, I see it continuing, I don't see disruptions to it. Which, while not perfect, for sure, I don't, I, I would never, yeah, I don't know, I, I know that I don't ever want to be without my partner that I have now. As of right now. <laughs> right, as of right now. <laughs> and, sure. like, my, my commitments to my partners are very similar to your commitment to your best friend. Mm -hmm. It's, let's spend this time together, let's live today, and I would love to continue this if it's beneficial for both of us. I don't see me not wanting them in my life. Like you said, I, I was definitely very careful with the commitments and the vows that I took to my husbands. Sure. Because I have screwed up in the past and made commitments that in hindsight I could not keep, mm -hmm. nor should I have. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, that you keep bringing that point up that, you know, that, that the commitment is really only as good as it's good for both parties. Yeah. Yeah. If your commitment's hurting both of you, it's a bad commitment. Yeah. Or if it's just hurting yeah, yeah, for sure. So, Michael, what other things were you wanting to push back on? 
I want to hear them. I don't know, it's been a while, so I don't remember the exact language you used, but I think the bundle of terms around what felt like a clear sense that it was specifically against human nature to want or support lifelong relationship bonding. You definitely made it seem like it was not a choice, that it was somehow universally forced upon you. Right, because when you first said, I don't believe in that, that was the reason I wanted to clarify, was I didn't know if you meant, I don't believe this for me. Versus I don't believe that it's possible. And then the third option is I don't believe Mm -hmm. it's possible in our society. Because our society definitely does kick back against supporting lifelong relationships, unfortunately. What I think is funny in our society is as a facade, in monogamous society, they definitely push for lifelong partners. Yep. This is what you should do in vows and marriage and commitment. And then like take that mask off and everybody's like, ah, screw vows and commitment and... It's just, it's funny that it's put out there like, you should be married for 50 years. And then I was like, ah, screw marriage for 50 years. Like behind closed doors. Yeah. So. Duality. Well, do you guys know, you guys, have I said this recently, that marriage success rates are on the rise? Really? I think you did say that before. Well, but here's the rub, right? We live in a really weird scenario where, like, my parents' generation has the highest divorce rate of any generation because they lived in a space where they had to get married. Actually, usually, even if they were gay, they had to get married to a heterosexual-looking mm-hmm. partner. And then, sort of halfway through their marriage, it became socially accessible to get divorced. Mm-hmm. And so they did, in en masse. Because before, it was cultural pressure that was holding it together. If you got divorced, your social life was over, your business life was over, your credibility mm-hmm. was over. You know, it even affect things like it's hard getting your kids into schools if you were wow. divorced, that sort of stuff, in the our grandparents' generation, my grandparents' generation. So there wasn't really a choice as far as staying married. And, well, man, my great-grandfather, his wife died in childbirth, wow. and he had three kids, and at the time it was against the law for a man to have kids without a wife. What? He was given a period of <laughs> one year to marry someone or his kids would be taken from him. Wow. That's insane. Did he manage that? He did. Yeah, he married, remarried. But obviously, I or I don't want to say obviously, but probably not for love. I, I mean, I don't know what it was for, but I, I mean, in a year, I'd be hard pressed to be really deep connection commitment, I think. And this was standard. This is what a lot of the English books like about having a governess are about. Yeah. It's been the same issue where the, you govern, if you were rich enough, you could hire a governess and that could replace your female companion female requirement it was not considered that kids could be raised healthily without a mother present so you didn't really have a lot of choice you're gonna you're gonna be married to somebody and unless they die they better be the person you married the first time that cultural pressure got relieved but during the time frame when people were choosing to get married that cultural pressure still existed and so a lot of people who were forced into marriages suddenly found the freedom to run away and be like nope i'm gonna be divorced but what you also see is you see lower rates of marriage so the marriage success rate's recovering because people aren't getting married unless they're serious. Well, that's good. So people who are getting married now are marrying people they want to marry. And a lot of people like you or like a lot of poly people are just not marrying anybody mm-hmm. because they know they don't want to do that. Or they're marrying for reasons other than cultural pressure. Yeah. Sure. They're marrying for sustainable reasons right. as a general rule. Interesting. That's causing marriage rates to success rebound, although I still would, you know, push back, don't see that as a, a note that monogamy is doing better necessarily or rebounding. It isn't in the same way. It's just that people who are into specifically that kind of structure are getting married in that context. And also there's people that like myself who are married for legal reasons because it helps us financially, but who are still in an open relationship. But because we had that built in, we're not going to get divorced over cheating because we're not going to be cheating because we're going to have an open relationship. Right. Right. Which is kind of, I'm legally married to one of my partners too. Right. 
Sure. Because insurance. Yeah. yeah. Insurance is the reason. Yeah. Yep. Insurance in our country is the reason for half of what everyone does anything. It's ridiculous. Oh, insurance. Insurance. Goodness. I think monogamy, it's the promise of the lifelong commitment, and it's set up in such a way that it fights against all other lifelong commitments. The whole reason people in our society don't take friendship commitment seriously is the concern that the friendship commitment will interfere with the lifelong monogamous commitment. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's very much true, which is where kind of the relationship anarchy comes into play with my feelings on that anyway, is that Mm -hmm. something that is part of relationship anarchy is to treat all relationships with the respect that that is deserving, like to not ditch your best friend because you fell in love and got married, to still invite them over for cards, that it's not necessarily a good emotional practice to just leave people behind because you found a romantic partner that suddenly is more important than the friend you've had for five years. Right. The idea for most people that you would discuss with your friends if you're going to move and your extended network instead of just with your one partner if you're going to move is an anthema to that idea. And I actually think that's part of where the idea that you can't have romantic love for more than one person comes from is the idea that romantic love is bound up in lifelong commitment and that that lifelong commitment can only survive if it's not contested by any other commitments. Ah. That makes sense. That if you have a primacy of that lifelong commitment where you're allowed to sacrifice and kill any other commitment to feed that one commitment, the chances of it surviving are perceived to be better. Mm -hmm. Although I would argue not because it actually makes you miserable and forces you into a lot of false dichotomies where it's like, do you want your wife or do you want your best friend? And you shouldn't have to do that. It puts stress on your relationship with your wife that you shouldn't be there. Right, right. exactly. Social, social isolation that can come with that is like really emotionally sure. detrimental. Yeah, and it's really weird how new a lot of this stuff is, despite how it's presented like it's old. People talk about like conservative values. You did not really have this closed, monolithic, nuclear family, only one important relationship view again, even three generations ago. You know, three generations ago, you worked with your extended family, your farm was a multi-family, multi-generational enterprise that you needed to survive. I mean, even up until World War II, if you enlisted, everyone from the same area got shipped out in a single unit together. Wow. So you were, you would actually even fight by your friends and family. But World War II changed that because the death rate was so high that what would happen is there'd be no men left in a whole town because that division would get wiped out. Goodness. Mm. I know we have a lot of listeners that are in a similar boat that I am as that they have partners that maybe they are not sexual with. They're not sexual partners. They're, I want to say romantic partners without the sexual element, but I still feel like that kind of gives it a sexual element. Can I ask what you mean by romantic then? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to clarify because I can imagine, you know, you think about the, the rise of the bromance as being a form of non-sexual love affair. Right. And do you mean that kind of romance or do you mean romance like you still smell each other's hair and like pet each other a bunch, but you don't have sex? Then let me describe my relationship with my partner. And then I would like to know where commitment falls with that for you guys, because I know that a lot of the discussion on commitment is the sexual element of it, especially in, in monogamy. So I have a a partner that I am not sexual with. We very much still snuggle and hold hands, tell each other we love each other. It's (laughs) in the middle of 
besties and romantic. Okay. Does that make sense? Describing that? Uh, it's, it's making sense to me. Okay. I have two partners that I'm like that with. I am committed to both of them. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I have a commitment to them both. Sure. And there's not a sexual element there. Yeah. So is that any different to you two than the commitment with the sexual element? I would like, if you would, to define what these two commitments are. Like, if you were to describe them, how how would you describe these commitments? I am committed to being there for them in any capacity that I can be. When they're struggling, you mean? Right. Okay. One of my partners recently lost a parent. Okay. And I have tried to be there for him, and I've told him that I am committed to being there for him as a partner, as whatever he needed me to be and that's throughout that's not just with this loss but it's kind of in this gray space between romantic and friendship okay but still committed to them i don't want to say more than you would be a best friend because i feel like that's kind of the relationship that you have with your best friend slash life partner michael yeah so i guess that i would i would almost compare it to that but with snuggles Unless you snuggle with him, and then it's the same. <laughs> Which, given your smile, you probably don't. I'm going to assume you probably don't. That is completely your business, though. Yeah. But like, I would, I, I would, I would almost compare it to that, but with snuggles. Yeah, and I would. I mean, I would say the only reason that there probably are not snuggles in that relationship is a lifetime inundation of toxic masculinity that makes those sorts of expressions with another male very difficult for me. Makes sense. I think there's a an equivalent in my friendship group, which is called fighting. The, the people that I like enough that I want to touch, we go and we punch on each other in the face and wrestle and grapple and you get that same contact, but you get it in a way that's acceptable for men. <laughs> Absolutely. It doesn't cause us to be uncomfortable with that contact Aww. content. That, that's such an affectionate man thing to do. <laughs> I like. I don't want to make claims that it's a man all men thing. are this way or all heterosexual men are this way or all whatever. Because I do like, that yeah, too. I, I, don't I like have that. friends that I do that with where I don't yeah. that tussle element is more comfortable than a cuddle element. Yeah. Maybe I should say it's a traditionally man yeah. thing, stereotype. Well, that's sort of what I'm going to say. I mean, that's what gender is, right? I mean, you it's didn't like, say it's a male thing. That's true. Right? You right. said it's a man thing, right. which is the gender. And in America, the man thing does include, yeah, I mean, that's that's why a lot of friends fight, I think. Okay. I think it's part of the, the getting the contact that we can't get anywhere else in, in a culturally acceptable context. You know, like in Europe, it's acceptable and normal, for instance, for male friends to hold hands the way that female friends do in America. And that's just something that I have a hard time imagining, even though at it, some level I see the value and sort of desire it. I don't know how I would do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lifetime thing. I would have to have someone else that wanted to do that with me. We'd have to work up to it. We'd have to do it with uh, probably laughter and you've first. been programmed yeah. i mean you know, you've like been all right we're just gonna hold hands and laugh about it that, right. that's not okay yeah we right yeah. the cultural scripts and they're some of them are deep-seated to the point that they're mm -hmm. just emotional content you gotta pick and choose your battles i spend so much time picking and choosing battles and i feel like my relationships are healthy enough without this one and that it's a very big one that i don't necessarily need right. to fight it 
although it is one that, you know, I hope will be less true for my son, because it is one, you know, touch-starved is the term for people who don't get enough touch, and in, in America, it's mostly men. Men get isolated from their family unit if they lose their partners, if they lose their early childhood close friends, they will find it nearly impossible to find a contact replacement, especially in old age. So it would be better if we didn't have that for sure, and I'm just, I guess, fingers crossed that doesn't happen to me, is sort of the way that I'm running that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But okay, so, you know, would you see those commitments as different? I think, I think you know, we're not trained to see how many gradients of relationship there really are. And we try and box things into relationships we can put labels on. Because if you think about, there are certain relationships where there are all the elements of what would otherwise seem like a sexual relationship with a complete zero sexual dead zone that gets a lot of the same values out of a sexual relationship minus sex. So the parenthood relationship includes an incredible amount of skin-to-skin contact, smelling each other, pheromone exchange, stroking children that's completely non-sexual and a level that it doesn't even register as sexual. But if you did the things that most parents do with their two-year-olds with any friend that you had, bathed together, constantly shoved your nose in their hair and smelled them all the time, nuzzled them, <laughs> kissed them on the cheek. And that's completely um, acceptable for females. You would... It totally is. I was going to say, me and my best friend, we totally do that. We live in opposite or separate states now. So, But like when we're together, we're like smelling each other's hair, snuggling, holding hands. I definitely like, had female totally friends all through childhood and high school and even adulthood that I got questioned whether we were an item. Hmm. And I'm like, no. Like that's, I don't even see her that way, but... Okay, you know, like, okay, if you think that, I don't care, but we're not, so... Right. And obviously that goes back to those cultural scripts that I've been taught, what I'm right, allowed right. to do and not allowed to do and what's appropriate and not appropriate. But you would also generally not find that appropriate in our culture if a man did that to a woman because there would be the concern that he was trying to take advantage of her and that he was not able to not take that. But, in that, but one of my partners is male that, that I have that with. Right. Well, I'm saying as in, because I'm responding to sort of the earlier discussion about whether or not say those are sexual gestures or not. And I think the only one, you know, in the, the bottom line is the only person that can say that is the person engaging in them. Like if it's not causing any sexual emotion that it's not a sexual gesture and if it lacks the sexual emotion if you were asking is it different than other friendships i don't see that as being different than other friendships except for in the fact that all relationships are unique and any relationship that has significant value is the kind of relationship where there should have been open and honest discussion about what the relationship is to each other so if your commitments with that person are clearly defined then they are the kind of relationship with clearly defined commitments which is the same ballpark as the relationship i have with my roommate is the same ballpark as the relationship I have with my wife. I definitely don't see adding sexual content as making relationships more important. That, I think, was what I was getting at, was that the sexual content doesn't necessarily make the commitment more important. The sexual aspect of it does not make or break a commitment or make it more important. Right. And I feel the same way with the relationship anarchist idea is that the sexuality component doesn't mean that this relationship is more important than this relationship that doesn't have sexuality. What we do know, though, is that having sex releases powerful bonding hormones for the people who are having sex. So having sex does often increase the speed of bonding, increase the affection and loyalty or allegiance, whatever, that you know, from the earlier language that you might have for that partner. So often a partner that you have sex with will more quickly than a non-sexual partner pass the level of commitment that you have to non-sexual partners. Not always, but, you know, a lot of times that is the case. I n- never critically thought about the speed 
and that the, the sexuality, <laughs> like I never thought about the idea that the sexuality progresses the intimacy further. Although like I understood that, but it never dawned on me that it is the sex that makes that happen. Mm-hmm. I think that even in poly circles, there is an assumption that sexual relationships are going to be sort of more important than friendships. I think that that gets held over in most cases because of our cultural monogamous scripts, because I definitely often have partners that I feel like read my relationship with my roommate wrong in the sense that they seem to think that I care more about them than my roommate. And I'm like, I just met you. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, relatively, right? Like I have this long-term four-year engagement with this person and I've known you for like six months to yes. a year. Like I know we're having sex and that's great and all, but I'm not going to mess up my happy home life <laughs> for the fact that we're having sex. Like that's, yeah. it's interesting. The idea that sex should give the relationship primacy over other valuable relationships in your life. Right. People look at my different relationships and my different partners and they assume that I'm more committed to Ryan and Jerry than I am other partners. I think part of this goes back to the same problem we have with love where we were like, let's go ahead and use the seven Greek words of love to discuss these different constructs, which is that people know there's different definitions of commitments and they conflate them together. So for example, in most cases, a live-in sexual partner has more total commitments, more total time of committed time from you just by virtue of the requirements of that relationship. That doesn't make those those relationships more important. That doesn't mean that you'd be more likely to violate other commitments than those commitments. But I think people will conflate things like, well, yeah, but you have a commitment to help them get to work in the morning because you guys share transportation and you have a commitment to eat food on a shared grocery bill and you have a financial commitment, you have a house commitment and you have a rent commitment and you have a kid commitment and you and this other person you don't have that number of commitments with. And so they go, so you're more committed to these other people. And you're like, what do you mean by more than Quantity yeah. over quality. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right. And so commitment means both, though, right? Because you can say, I have 100 commitments and, like, list off commitments. Right. Mm-hmm. And you can have more commitments to this one person than another person. But that doesn't mean that you would ever violate the commitments you have to the person with less number of commitments. And I think people just assume whoever has the most commitments wins a battle of commitments. <laughs> you yes. win! Uh, commitment chess. I don't... <laughs> That's definitely my sense of what it means to treat my partners equally, is that I treat each relationship the way I would treat that relationship if I had no other relationships as far as how I make commitments and how I triage commitment violation. If I have a commitment to go to a play and then my grandma dies, I'm probably not going to go to that play because I have to go help my mom, right? And I committed to my friends that I'd go, but there's a system. You're committed to your mother as well. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And you have these commitment overlays. But the for me, equality means treating each relationship the same way you treated the other relationship in that sense. So we talked about this really early on on like one of the first episodes you visited on. We were like, well, surely you have more commitments to the mother of your child. I liked your your phrase, triage commitments. Mm-hmm. I like that yeah. because people do that in everyday life. Like monogamous people have to do that. But when you're polyamorous, that's a daily thing that you triage your commitments. I think my point is that it's actually always a daily thing and monogamy pretends or makes claims that the partner you're with should always come first. And it leads to some really often toxic scenarios. Oh, sorry, let me call it Toxic monogamy does this. I should always add the toxic because I, I definitely am not against monogamy. I have a lot of faith in people who have considered monogamous views, but the, the toxic monogamy, like toxic masculinity, are things that I can't get behind. And in, in this sort of toxic monogamy view, your partner always wins, even if their concerns aren't important. Like I stopped one time 
to help someone with a flat tire fix their tire back before cell phones were still super like everywhere. Like now I don't even stop because it just scares people when you stop now. <laughs> they don't know why you're stopping. They have a cell phone. They've already called somebody. There was a time when if someone was broken down on the side of the road and you didn't stop, that poor person was just stranded forever. We appreciated so it when someone, you stopped. Yes. <laughs> someone had to stop and help, right? And so I stopped and I got their tire back on. And as a result, I was like 45 minutes late getting home. I had a date that night, like a five-hour date. But like, you know, going out to eat, nothing like, no time constraints really. And my partner was just so mad at me. Like, what, this random stranger comes before your girlfriend? And I'm like, yeah. no. <laughs> yeah, they did not, at the yeah. moment. Well, but no, but not, but not before <laughs> them for, for equal concerns. That's a common stream in, in toxic monogamy. You know, it's funny because I tell that story and I tell that story to my mom and she had the same story where she was mad at my dad for stopping to help someone fix their tire on the way home to see her. And I mean, I think it was their anniversary, but still, like, again, back in the time when there were no cell phones, you know, your anniversary is special, sure. But, and it's weird because it's a, a point of view issue as well like you know my mom's i guess perspective i assume is someone would have stopped to help them they would have figured it out like people don't usually die on the side of the road from a flat tire but you don't know that either <laughs> like you don't and you don't know when and how long they would have had to wait and, and you want to get them off the side of the road as quickly as possible yeah, yeah, right. and you don't want to be people on the side of the road, and you don't want to be on the side of the road. Right. If you were broken down, you'd want someone to stop and help you exactly. when you couldn't help yourself. So it's it's weird that you don't want the people in your life to help other people right. in the same situations. So again, we'll probably commitment is thousands of ways to read it, but for, we've been primarily talking about what it we mean to be committed to a relationships specifically, I think, mm-hmm, right, right, is the, the view here. Because obviously I make commitments, mm-hmm. and making commitments is different. If I tell my child's school I'll be there to be the designated parent to bring the snack on Thursday, there it becomes important to me to actually be there because I said I would be there because it's a mechanical process. The place breaks down if I'm not. We talked about this before about having people you can rely on for like medical needs or something. That's a different kind of requirement or commitment. Mm-hmm. But inside of the, the relationship commitment, commitment to me basically just means living up to the agreement that you've made about that relationship with the people and the person or people in those relationships. And you can have that with monogamy and you can have that with non-monogamy and the idea that it's entirely bound up in whether or not you have sexual fidelity is, I think, demonstrably just wrong. Yes. Yeah. People have had successful lifelong commitments to people that, well, you know, like to your family who you don't sleep with, for instance, to children, your kids yeah. who you don't sleep with, friends, you know, whatever. It's possible, clearly to have significant commitments that don't include sex. And since you can have significant commitments that don't include sex, and since you can define what your commitments are going to be to a sexual partner, it seems clear that you can then have multiple multiple sexual partners without violating your commitments as long as everybody agrees to those commitments. Right. Like, I think that the, one of the things that people can mistake a lot of times is the idea that if you just cut someone off from all their bonding, which is sort of those traditional codependent relationships that are so un- unhealthy, that they will then give you all of their commitment, and therefore you'll have, like, the maximum amount of bonding and commitments. But what happens, of course, which is why we have a name for it, in codependent relationships is a problem, is it, it poisons the relationship because it's just not human nature to bond with a single person in that way. And here I don't mean sexually, although I... It can be included. To the extent that there's yeah. evidence, I don't think that's that that's human nature. But it's not clear, obviously. But you can't bond to just one person emotionally. You have to have friends and family and support systems that are beyond that single individual. And if you don't, 
what you think is commitment is actually going to turn toxic and, and be less committed. The person will be more likely to violate those commitments, to run away, to, you know, do whatever because they're just unhealthy. All right, so clean, clear takeaway. Could you ask a poly person, how can they have commitment when they're sleeping with multiple people? The answer is we make commitment contracts that are clear with our partners and we adhere to the contracts that we agreed to with those partners. And we make all of our commitments just like you make all of your commitments. We just don't agree to make a lot of the commitments that you agree to make. Yep. We have accuracy <laughs> Details. Yes. <laughs> With accuracy and details. And that we, we well, generally that's... separate sexual fidelity from commitment. Right. For next week's episode, we're going to do something that we haven't been able to do before because we haven't been around long enough to do it until now. Our first outtakes episode. Every week, we record probably twice as much information as I'm able to put into the final podcast. And a lot of that is trash, open space, dead air, mispronunciations, repeats. But some of it is funny, and some of it is insightful, but just doesn't fit into the time frame or the meta-narrative of that week's episode. So after 13 episodes, I'm going to go through and pick out the best material. We hope it will give you insight into how the show gets made, what happens behind the scenes, and generally also be an amusing diversion from the seriousness of most of our topics. Have a great week. And as always, please leave a comment on the Probably Polly podcast page and feel free to reach out for a, to us if you have any topics you'd like discussed or if you have any questions for us. And thank you so much for your time. We care about you. Sharing us on Facebook. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. Yeah. Bye.